The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 356. My name is Chris. And my name is Noah. Hey, Noah. Good morning. Now, we have good a big morning. show. I'm really excited. Noah's going to take us into the ham shack today. Noah, how long have you been a ham? Uh, well, I just renewed my I just renewed my license, so I guess a little over 10 years. Okay. So Noah's going to go into ham radio. Some call it the OG open source. I don't know about that. But what I do know is it's a fascinating world, and it's one that goes hand-in-hand hand with Linux and open source. So we'll learn a little bit about ham radio, and then we're going to learn about how it works under Linux. It's something I've wanted to do since the beginning of this show, so I'm really excited to dive into this topic. And then in the news... Holy crap. Speaking of something we've been watching a long time, there's now over a thousand games under Steam for Linux. We're going to go into some of the milestones there. Google's calling it quits on one of their major open source initiatives. We'll tell you about that. And is the Linux Foundation trying to rein in Linus Torvalds? And then is Father Time about to call it quits? And it could impact one of the most important open source projects that we depend on. So we'll talk about what's going on there and maybe the projects that could be replacing it, even if it never gets its funding. And then we also have our feedback. So it's a big show. And on top of all of that, Noah, we've got our picks. And I believe this one this week was sent in uh, by an audience member, a Runs Linux, correct, sir? It was. And he wants to say hi to his mom. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, he was very specific about that. He's like, he's like, here's the Run Linux, and it's amazing. <laughs> and by the way, hi, mom. So well, I said I'd pass it along. So uh, Romeo, uh, uh, Romeo says hi to his mom. And uh, he tells us that the uh, Arby, Army Cyber Warfare Unit runs Linux, and we got a, here is a, uh, a picture of a still, or a still from a video we're about to show you, and if you look closely right there, Noah, I don't know about you, but does that look like maybe GNOME 3 with classic mode turned on? Yep, yep, yeah. that's what I was thinking, yeah. I was thinking GNOME. Alright, let's see it in action, so here we go, we got the YouTube uh, from the USA Army uh, recruiting channel. ...is pivotal, as it will be an essential element of all future operations. Watch closely. And for the commander capable of seeing the network as a weapons platform, the soldiers in this MOS will play a critical role, enhancing and safeguarding cybersecurity yeah. for mission-critical assets. Those are definitely Linux Military rigs. occupational specialty, cryptologic network warfare specialist. Wow! <laughs> that's a lot of mumbo-jumbo, but that was definitely Linux I was seeing there. Now, uh, that's cool. That's pretty cool, Noah, but do you want to know how they used to do it back in the 80s? Uh, how about uh, the late 80s? This is how the Army used to simulate their warfare. This is the gear they used. The Army is playing its own video games these days with a massive real-time simulation of Star Wars, or SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative. The Army's war game involves a Cray XMP supercomputer connected to eight mini supercomputers connected to 30 mainframes. The Army says the experiment will enable them to synchronize all Earth and space-based SDI assets within four microseconds. Oh yeah, the SDI initiative, right, uh, Star Wars. So there you go, 30 mainframes when they used to play uh, war games before. And now they're doing it on... they had, ran on tapes? Yeah, oh, totally, or punch cards maybe even. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're doing it with Linux laptops. So that's that's the change. That's how that's how the technology has changed. We go from 30 mainframes to some Linux laptops. Uh, pretty with, cool. With SSDs probably. I mean, really, and if you're going to launch cyber warfare and n unquestionably stoke the next generation of cyber wars and be the instigator of uh, all-out worldwide cyber warfare, you want to do it under Linux, 
right? Absolutely. And you're going to want SC Linux, so you're going to be using some sort of a Red Hat distribution. <laughs> I, I actually would be not surprised at all. I mean, so isn't the latest Red Hat Enterprise Linux shipping with GNOME with the classic extensions pre-turned on? Yeah. So that probably yeah. was Red Hat I, Enterprise. I actually, just for a brief time, I tried to use Red Hat as a desktop distribution just to see if it could be done. Yeah. And it was a total nightmare, and I would never, ever, ever recommend doing that, yeah. but I tried. You know, yeah. when we were at um, uh, uh, Ohio Linux Fest, uh, I got uh -huh. the inside scoop on how the Red Hat guys do that. So, I, you know, because oh. I was asking him, I'm like, so seriously, like, this is your full-time desktop? You're not lying to me? He's like, yeah, yeah Red Hat Enterprise Linux is yeah. your full-time desktop. I'm like, okay, but seriously, how hard is that? He's like, yeah, I'm not going to lie. It does take a little extra work. Uh, I do it right. because I need the experience for my work. He says, but I'll tell you what's, what's, what's becoming a game changer. Not, and this is, this is this, you know, I think you probably know what I'm talking about, the guy at Ohio Linux Fest yep. at Red Hat, right? So right. I, I was talking about this, and he says, it's not just me, but a lot of the uh, people on the team internally that are using this on their machines are now using mm -hmm. Docker to do a lot of the applications that are just a right. huge pain in the butt. So now they're using Red Hat uh -huh. Enterprise Linux as the base desktop and Docker to install some of the stuff or even build certain development environments that are sort of outside Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Um, yeah. And that's, he says, making the big difference for them. And that's what that's what always makes Red Hat a standout a company to me and, and kind of why I'm probably, I probably border on fanboyism is that you when you meet their employees, all of them are running Linux. Uh, granted, I will give you that the man, I've seen more of them running Fedora on the desktop than than Red Hat. But the bottom line is, is they eat their own dog food. They have they issue laptops with Linux, and then they can wipe away Red Hat and put on Fedora if they'd rather have it. You know, depending on what you do. But yeah, uh, yeah. there there are a couple of them that run Red Hat as their as their desktop distribution, and and I think they're nuts. But I, you know. I suppose, I mean, you can get it to work. The, the thing that, that, the thing that, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was I couldn't even reliably get GNOME 3 to stay with the, like, the activities, like, the actual GNOME 3. I didn't want it in the fallback mode. And there was some guides to do it, and I got it to work, but then when I went to update it, went back, and then I just threw in the towel and said, forget it. Yeah. Because things like VLC, things like VLC take, like, 40 minutes to get that to work because right. it just nothing is designed around that and why well, should it be it's not it's not really what it's meant for and the flip side is in the news segment we're going to talk a little bit about fedora 22 and some of the stuff they're doing on the desktop side there so and that's sort of the other side of that coin isn't it so uh stay tuned we'll have a little discussion on that but first i want to mention our friends over at DigitalOcean. go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code last digital to get a ten dollar credit las digital all one word lowercase that supports the show but it also gives you a ten dollar credit that you get to apply to your account and you can try out the rigs for a little while now what is DigitalOcean? it is awesome it's my data center these days it's simple cloud hosting dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server that doesn't mean you have to be a dummy or you know you have to be an it administrator to know how to do it, it means it's built so that anybody can get it done. If you're an IT pro, you love how streamlined and efficient it is. If you're new to doing this kind of thing, you appreciate how easy and intuitive it is to get started and how quick you can do it. You'll get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. Yeah, what's up? Go check it out on Instagram. It's gorgeous. Their interface is simple and intuitive. And the control panel, it's like, uh, honestly, you know, I talk a lot about UI. Uh, and it's one of these that I, I, I cannot understate. I, I can't overstate. I cannot, I cannot, I mean... When I started working in virtualization, uh, my first experience to virtualization was controlled from a 386 connected to a System 390 IBM mainframe. 
and the experience of watching what how you would manage that. And then later I translated to uh, IBM's other virtualization platforms, eventually VMware, uh, and then and then and then Zen uh, and uh, uh, VirtualBox, obviously a bunch of other virtualization platforms. Um, Proxmox is one that I've used a lot. I have never experienced in any of my years using any of those systems an interface that is as well designed as DigitalOcean's interface to manage this or as fast and powerful. And the best part is, is even though it's crazy easy, crazy intuitive, and that's all you'd ever need, they also have a straightforward API that the user community extends on a fantastic basis. So even if you don't want to use the API yourself, you don't ever have to write a line of code or a, a line of script. You just go take advantage of the community apps and they rock. It's so handy. To, to like just go check on my droplet, on my own cloud droplet from my from my Android device when I'm on the go. I love it. It's just a nice peace of mind too. Go over there and try out their one-click installations as well. You can get started on things like Ghost or or uh, GitLab or WordPress with one-click installation. And DigitalOcean's been all in on Docker since day one. They truly get the fundamental key technologies like Docker, KVM, SSDs for the storage, and now CoreOS and and FreeBSD. So if you use our promo code LastDigital. You'll get that $10 credit. You go trap that $5 rig for two months for absolutely free. Go set up your own own cloud instance and see what it's like to take your data into your own hands. Go set up sync thing and have your own offsite cloud storage. Go use GitLab and sync your configuration files to your own server that you have root access to. DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. Also, speaking of Docker, don't forget about their amazing tutorials. They have a great introduction to the common components of Docker. If you're struggling to understand Docker but it's something you think you need to know, this is it. This is what I'm talking about. DigitalOcean has, they totally get this stuff, and they just are featuring a great write-up right now with great visual overviews, all of it. Check it out, digitalocean.com, promo code LASTDIGITAL, and a huge, huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. I love it, Noah. I love it. Yeah, and apparently a lot of other people love it, too. I Last week, or the week before, I think it was last week, that I offered to give uh, some of those $15 coupons away. They're all gone now, but I, I got... Uh, I got loaded with uh, interesting stories of all the interesting things that people are doing with Linux. And it's funny because every time I think I have a pretty good idea of what Linux is capable of, <laughs> somebody surprises me and they're like, guess yeah. what I did? And I'm like, really? That's possible? Yeah. You can do that? I didn't even know you could do that. Some of my favorite stories are like uh, emails from dads that are like, well, I set this up for my family. Now we have own cloud on there for my wife and kids. Right. And we have a Minecraft mm -hmm. server on there. And we have a Mumble server on there. And they have a family Mumble server. And they're doing it for $5 a month. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, so our uh, our desktop app pick today looks like one of these tools that I wish I would have known about way long time ago. Noah, yeah. you uh, pointed me to this, and it looks super great. It is Shell in a Box. What is it, sir? Well, so I was at I was at Green Mill, sitting at Green Mill, and I opened up my laptop, and they have free Wi-Fi. So I connected the free Wi-Fi, and of course they have the little captive portal. So I go and accept the terms, sign my life away, and <laughs> agree to be on the Human Centipede, all that stuff. And then uh, I open up my, sh my I open up my terminal, and I, as you can imagine, I live a lot of my life inside of a terminal. I get a lot of my work done in the terminal, and can't talk to my server. So first I kind of freaking out. I'm like, you know, did something go wrong? And if, if something went wrong, why didn't my alert systems, you know, send an alert to my phone? So yeah. go on my phone and I check, no, I can get into the server just fine. So why can't I do it? Well, turns out Green Mill blocks everything except port 80. So I had no way to get, I mm. couldn't SSH into anything. I hear about this on so the TechSnap show all the time. Yeah, so what I started, so I, I started looking for a solution. I found the shell in the box. It took me, and again, DigitalOcean, $5, spun it up, took five minutes, 
And within, I'd say within 10 minutes, I had, I could go to the public IP of my, uh, of my, of my digital ocean droplet. Cause at that point, you know, I don't have DNS set up and, uh, and all, I get, I get a web page with a blinking cursor and I can SSH into anything I want. So it was, it, it's amazing. It just, it just loads. The whole web page is a shell. Is a shell. And so you, what, is, what into, user is it running as? Well, so you log in. To, so it, 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 oh, okay. it prompts you as if you just sat down at the council of a box. So you'd log in with whatever user you created on your, on your droplet. And then once you're logged into that machine, obviously you can SSH into other machines. So it seems like this could obviously be abused if you were not very careful with how it's set up, but easily right. on and a I land. Actually, to that point, so DigitalOcean, the nice thing about DigitalOcean is I can power down the machine from the web council, right? I can log into my DigitalOcean uh, dashboard. I click on the droplet. I can power it off, and it, it, it's not running unless I need it. If I need it, I log into my uh, DigitalOcean dashboard. You I should, turn it uh, back on. get the Android app. Yeah, well, yeah, the uh, Swimmer. Swimmer yeah, app, Swimmer's right? a good one. Yeah, yeah. I have it. I've, I've never, I don't, don't really use it. As, as, as you're well aware, I'm not a big fan of... Uh, tablets so i try and get everything done from my laptop yeah, yeah. but the the uh, plus it looks so nice when you go yeah and, you know that little dashboard and I can this see is not an ad by the way this is honestly not an ad this is really just what he does yeah yeah, yeah. no yeah, this yeah. is why yeah. no one needs like 50 droplets <laughs> yeah I, did i tell you they raised my limit yes, yes. they raised my limit from 25 it was great yeah. i uh, <laughs> so i'm no longer limited to 25 droplets it's amazing <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I can. Sp but this is why you get stuff like this for five dollars. I have I have sh shell access, so I generated my yeah. SSH keys and propagated those out, and now now I can log into right. to any of my computers. Well, what and I like about this it is because I, it's off. this would be perfect on my home server, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, because yeah. this would this would work. Then I would assume because it's not using it's, is it it's not Java, right? I mean, it, it's is is it is it would know, it work on a it? mobile device? It would, I right? I assume so. I don't yeah, know. I'll look. try it and find out. Uh, it's JavaScript. Yeah, so it would work. Yeah, so you could load okay. this up on... So this would be a perfect This would be a perfect tool to have on your home file server or something like that. And then from your tablet on your couch, you could just bring it up in your web browser and get shell access. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, you could also just get an SSH client, but it's neat. It is nice. You don't have to have any additional Well, you software. can get an SSH client until you don't have access to anything but port 80, and then you can't get an SSH yeah. client, which, yeah. is, which is where I was at. And for me, if I was going to use something like this... Uh, I wouldn't even bother with trying to figure out how to secure it. I would just not have it on unless it was easy to, you know. Like, I would yeah. just, like, do what I you're mean, doing is turn turn the drop, in your case, turning the droplet on for a few minutes and then turning mm -hmm. it off. That's a pretty good way to make sure people aren't going to get into it when you're right. not using I, it. I mean, I know that security through obscurity is no security at all, but the reality is you can change. You could, you could I mean, it kind of eliminates the purpose then, but you could change the port, the web port of, of which it uh, of which it connects to. And then in addition to that, it is SSL. It has a self-signed certificate. But... Um, yeah, so it's not like they didn't put any thought into security, but you are essentially handing a keyboard to the council of, yeah. of a box to yep. everyone. But you know what? Here's the other thing, too. Worst case scenario, um, if I have propagated SSH keys, but let's say you hadn't done that. Worst case scenario, they, they, you know, they get into your DigitalOcean droplet, they do bad things, and then DigitalOcean tells you, hey, bad things are happening, and then you turn it off. Well, and, and I actually, I think uh, it maybe uh, on a VPS is less of a uh, of, of, of a scenario as a, as a real more uh, use case scenario is on a LAN. Like, uh, uh, so I was just thinking of that uh, Ubuntu orange box. Like, you know, you could put yeah. this on those NUCs or uh -huh. uh, I was, you know, again, I'm thinking of like our VMs here that we have here at the studio that, uh, you know, we could throw them on there. So... I think a shell in a box mm -hmm. has a lot of uses, not just on a something to be facing for the public, but if you mm -hmm. if you know how to handle the risks and you can mitigate those, it could be useful for that too.
Yep. Um, all right. So uh, shell in a box, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. All right. So I want to talk about something that uh, we were actually the first to know about. Uh, the uh, New Mix Project was on the show a long time ago and teased a release of a new distribution, a collaboration of two projects that came together to make something real fancy. Uh, and we were quite intrigued when they announced it. Uh, so Ozone OS has been announced. The Hydrogen Beta just released, and it definitely is beta, so keep that in mind. It's a Linux distribution based on Fedora, created by a collaboration between the Numix project and the Nutrix SA project, designed not to get in the way, but to be really simple uh, and modern-looking, and really make Fedora approachable to the average person who probably wants to sit down, watch a few Flash videos, or, you know, videos or play mp3s and play steam games mm -hmm. and they published a teaser video so i mean as is customary on uh, the big show because it's a teaser video for distribution i mean we, we, we gotta play it no so they're showing their nice looking desktop they have uh They've created the Atom desktop, uh, which is a set of extensions that sit on top of GNOME. So they have not forked GNOME. It's a preset of extensions that work together that include, like, the uh, Atom dock uh, and uh, the Atom dash, uh, their own theme that looks really nice. Uh, and all this is kind of... So it takes the, your, uh, your standard Fedora installation and just makes it much more elegant. Um, and the, and uh, they have some exclusive artwork in here. Now, the thing is, is of course, as is always happens uh a lot of this stuff is already hit like the arch user repository uh in fact a big thank you and shout out to blackout 24 in our chat room and uh, subreddit who has brought a lot of this stuff to the arch user repository uh so i installed it on my machine last night so i've got a great looking archbox now <laughs> and i didn't install this but i did install the beta for a little bit this week and uh it still says fedora in most places because it's early days but noah this is exactly what i've been waiting for i've been wondering why somebody mm -hmm. hasn't taken fedora and and made it a little more approachable. Do the things that legally Fedora and Red Hat won't do and morally won't do, but need to be done to make it approachable to a wider user base. What do you think about right. it? Right. Uh, I think that there are a number of spins, um, and particularly ones that have been uh, that have been cooked a little longer than Ozone. And well, I think yeah, Ozone's brand new. About those. Yeah, right. I mean, you got like so, Aurora. Right, and and so and so um, because there are because there are you know because there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of other spins that exist on Fedora, and then I think that there are also people like me that I worry once I start to stray from Fedora when things go wrong, then who do I go to? You know, now I'm essentially have to go to the Ozone people before they can hand it well, off. Well, this is what I like about it. So uh, they're not going crazy, like they're not doing their own fork of a desktop. This isn't uh, the, right. the, the, the you know the Luma desktop environment or whatever. This is extension. Uh, based on so they're taking advantage of upstream that way uh, sure. for example to get some of the extra software they're using they're not going crazy they're just integrating RPM fusion which is probably something you would have done anyways once you installed uh -huh. Fedora right so right. in a lot yeah. of ways what they're doing the changes they're making are changes you are gonna make anyways to make Fedora truly usable for you uh, sure. and but instead so it's not like it's sort of like in my in my vision it's, it's I see it as sort of like antigross like there's Arch users will be like, oh, don't talk to us about problems. That's Antigross, not Arch. But in reality, the only thing right. they're doing differently than Upstream Arch is they have a repo that adds a, a LibreOffice installer, some artwork, and a couple other things. And otherwise, it's totally yeah. vanilla Arch. Well, I think that's uh -huh. kind of the same thing with Ozone. Is It's right. a lot more Fedora than it is anything else. So but I think an experienced understand... user like you would have no problem. Right, but you can understand why... 
uh, but an experienced, yeah, but an experienced user like me, I'm also very comfortable getting everything set up the way I want it in Fedora anyway. And you can understand why Fedora or Arch would be hesitant to offer official support for essentially another distribution, even if that other distribution only changes by maybe that one percent or maybe one and a half percent. Because oh, now yeah. maybe it's maybe it's just uh, they've added RPM Fusion and, and tweaked a couple icons. But down the road, how can you be sure that any of the changes that they make aren't going to negatively affect other things? And then it gets it it just it becomes difficult on on who to support. So I, I'm glad it exists. I think it's really cool, and I do think it's good that that Fedora is a little bit more approachable, especially for people that sit down that are coming from things like Ubuntu, where you can install VLC, for example, is in the repo. And then you sit down at Fedora and, and it's not. And, and, and yeah. you start wondering why. Why is I that just, piece of software? It always has gotten me. Like, you have so many retakes on Ubuntu. You have retakes on Arch. And if you can make mm -hmm. Arch Linux approachable with uh, Manjaro and Antigros and things like that, then right. why isn't anybody doing it with Fedora? Now Ozone right. comes along. Uh, they say they do performance optimizations out of the box. I don't know what that means, but I'll take <laughs> this part. They make it easy to install video drivers. I believe that, and I like that. Uh, they, uh, you know, I think that's pretty. I think that's a critical component missing for a lot of people to hear that. No, oh, I can get Steam on Linux. There's this distribution that's made by these guys that work at Red Hat. I hear Red Hat's the number one Linux distro. I should probably use their right. desktop version. Oh, now I have to install video drivers. And how horrible is it when when you like go to do something on Linux and you have that moment where you go, Oh God, this feels like how I used to have to do things. Yeah. Oh, I remember yeah. when I used to, yeah. to do like I had that experience recently when I went to go install the ATI driver and it was way more complicated than installing the NVIDIA driver. And it wasn't that bad, but I was like, oh, yeah, yeah I remember when things used to be a little bit more yeah. challenging. And it's like uh, so Fedora, it still has a lot of that when it comes to that kind of stuff, and especially if I just want to get down and try Torchlight 2 or I want to play Dota 2. And I've heard that those things are available on Steam and those are my favorite games because those games are hugely popular. Dota 2 alone, uh -huh. people people are dedicated just to playing Dota 2 and you try to sit down and play it on Fedora, it's a total bomb. But if Ozone makes it easier, I think this could be huge for the Fedora project. And honestly, right. Noah, the thing is, is I think it's critically important that we get another desktop contender that is not Ubuntu. And we yeah. need somebody that has the backing of a company that can fight legal battles, that can negotiate right. deals with other companies, yep. that has a yep. presence that's respected and has a brand. Mm -hmm. And that's why Canonical yep. is such a great backer for Ubuntu, and that's why Valve chose Ubuntu when they launched Steam on Linux. But we need somebody else who can be a contender in that space because if something ever goes wrong with Ubuntu, like if they screw the pooch by converting their desktop over to QT and nobody likes it for a few years and nobody wants to recommend Ubuntu, we really need something to recommend to people. And wouldn't it be great if that was a Red Hat backed project, even if it was sort of one step removed, but it, it, at least it was backed by some company that yeah. there was a brand behind that people would have faith in. People, and when I say people, I mean people like Valve and business owners and CTOs right. and CIOs. Those people have to be able to make a choice. And right now it's always Ubuntu. Oh, we're going to do a deployment. It's Ubuntu in most cases. If it could be a Fedora right. base, that would be a very good for the Linux community just to give it and some frankly, competition. And frankly, I like the values, and I, I like the values that I see in Red Hat folks. When I meet Red Hat folks, when I when I talk to Red Hat folks, they they care about the the Linux desktop. And that's not to say that people at Canonical don't. But again, I see a lot more people working for Red Hat running Red Hat or Fedora than I see people yeah. working for Canonical running yeah. Ubuntu, and that well, says something. And I you just know, my point is, and just to underscore is, and I'm I don't I don't I'm not advocating anything bad happen to Ubuntu because what I would like to see right. is healthy competition Both. there, yes. right? To really right. kind of spur that stuff along. And if uh, yep. if Corora and Ozone 
and just mainline Fedora, which is getting better on its own with Work Fedora mm-hmm. Workstation. 21 was an amazing release. 22 looks incredible. We're going to talk more about it later. Uh, uh-huh. if, if, if like that trifecta can bring Fedora up more and bring some natural competition, it's just going to make Ubuntu yep. better, too. Right? That's right, and that's, that's right. gonna be awesome. So that's, that's right, and no matter what you end up with, whether you end up with a Red Hat distribution or a canonical distribution, you'll have you'll have what is the best because because they've been fighting, they've been not fighting, but they have been competing with each right. other and and driving one to be to one up their game rather than saying, well, we've reached a point where the desktop is as good as it's going to get. Well, you won't be able to do that. You can't say things like that if somebody else is constantly trying to one up what you've done on the desktop. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. 100%. All right. So before we go, I want to plug our shirt that we're selling to uh, raise funds for our initiative to get uh, the crew out to Linux Fest Northwest. And it's not going very well. So if you've been on the fence, that we've we've met our goal. They tipped it. They will ship now. But we haven't even broke 100 shirts, which is kind of our cost point. Uh, you go to teespring.com slash Linux. We're doing this. I know we've done some shirts in the past. And we're this, because of the uh, the slow trajectory of this one, this will probably be the last one we do for a little while. Uh, we might have one more in the in the pipeline, and then that's going to be it. I think uh, just to kind of give it a break and kind of make them a little more exclusive again. And the reason why is uh, we kind of we kind of hung our hat on using this to fund the Linux Fest Northwest trip. I can tell you that's not happening at 98 shirts. So if you've been on the uh, fence and you want to help us get the whole crew out to Linux Fest Northwest to not only do the best coverage of a fest we've ever done, but maybe also to get a little bit of that magic when the whole crew gets together. Uh, gets to sit down, have dinner, and come into the studio and talk face to face. You could probably produce some pretty great content. And we'd really like to make that happen because we think it's going to make all the shows better if the crew has a chance to get together. Uh, but I figure it's a couple thousand dollars at least, maybe more per person, if you include flight and board. We're trying to work out so uh, we're like uh, we're gonna we're talking to some folks to see if they can either pay their own or uh, things like that. Since the trajectory here is a little slow on the shirts, but we could use your help, and it's a great way to get yourself something. And also help us out. You go to teespring.com slash Linux. We have a T-shirt, a ladies tee, a hoodie, the long sleeve shirt, which I like a lot, and a kid's shirt, too. And uh, you can get them in multiple colors. And it's the uh, black and white edition of the logo, which we had specially designed to make sure it would look excellent when we print it. And then when you show up to the fest, you get to rock the swag. But even if you're not going to the fest, you still get a great shirt. And uh, you can walk around, and it's a conversation starter because this is Linux action show in big letters with the Tux Penguin, and it's a surprising conversation starter about Linux. And then when we ever come to your area, which I think we might one day, um, you can rock it then. It's a good shirt. Teespring.com slash Linux. Noah, we'll, we'll probably send you one. You, you don't think you have to. You want a blue one, Noah? How about a nice blue uh, one? Yeah, I don't know. They, they all look good. You always the wear black, Noah. Good. You're, always, looks good. you're always wearing black. Yeah, I want to yeah, see you in blue. When we're out on the boat, right. I want you wearing a blue shirt. You know, when we're on you know the boat. where that black started? That black started back in high school where I used to buy all my shirts from ThinkGeek, and they were always black shirts with, you know, geeky phrases on them. And then, I, yeah. I don't know, the look. Yeah, I used to do that too. Uh, mm-hmm. I will say, the chat room's asking, I will say the long sleeve shirts are my favorite. Um, I like the way they're, they're, they're cut. Um, and I also, uh, I think the thickness is perfect. Out of all my long sleeve shirts I have, the ones that with our uh, swag on it, not just because they have our swag logos on it, but I just think they're the best long sleeve shirts too. Now, uh, the chat room tells me I'm sick of shirts. It sucks because we really need the help. But uh, there is another way you can help out the network, and that's at patreon.com slash today. This, t- this page here, we do the Tech Talk Today show. It's a daily tech show as a thank you to our patrons. It's a show I do as just saying thank you for supporting the network. Uh, this is also a way you can support our initiatives like this. We use the funds raised here for hardware initiatives and travel initiatives. And the nice thing about kicking in at the Patreon is it'll also support future 
Fess as well. That's patreon.com slash today. You also get access to behind-the-scenes stuff. And uh, in a few shakes, probably in a week or two or sometime, Noah's going to be out here in a little while. Right, Noah? Yes, yes, probably. Yep. We have kind of a secret mission that we'll tell you more about soon. It's gonna, he's going to be out here for. And I think when he's out here, we'll probably record some behind-the-scenes videos. Those go up to our patrons. So not only do you help with this fest, future fest, but you also get exclusive goodies at patreon.com slash today. Uh, and this is really what we want to do. And the reason why we go this route is we want to make these trips uh, as much about the coverage of the fest and the community as possible. Uh, I do believe there's space for sponsorships, uh, but that adds complication and distraction. Um, And it's not something I'm totally opposed to, especially if it facilitates us being able to make these conferences happen at all. Obviously, that's a route I would go. Um, The thing I like about crowdsourcing these through the shirts and through the Patreon is it keeps our focus really based on the community, really just heads down on the game. uh, And it just makes it very simple. It allows our focus to be very direct on the content. Uh, And it feels more direct to you, too. We're going to these conferences sort of sponsored by you to do the coverage for you. Uh, And I think that coverage of these fests is sorely missing in the Linux press. I think there's not enough I don't think there's enough blog posts about it. I don't think there's enough coverage about it in general. I don't think there's enough podcasts covering it. And uh, we have so much conflict in the Linux community. We're going to talk about uh, the stuff going on with Linus and uh, the uh, code of uh, conflict. We have uh, so much hate around systemd. And you hear so often about how the BSD community is so much more gentle and, and, uh, and uh, so much more um, um, diplomatic to each other and, uh, and rational in their discussion and, and discourse. And uh, the thing is, is that is so 100% true about the Linux community. It's just it all happens at these events, at these conferences, all these human connections that happen that are so critical to the progress of open source, uh, the direction of Linux, and that community aspect that matters the most with open source and the best elements happen at these conferences, and then you never hear about them. The only thing you hear about is the fights that happen over mailing lists where people are talking to each other behind their screens and behind their keyboards and their monsters to each other. But you never hear about these amazing connections that happen at these conferences and it's such a fundamental core piece to open source and Linux. And that's why I want to make sure that the Linux Action Show can put a spotlight on these events because I believe it represents the very best of Linux open source and collaboration and nobody's doing it properly. Nobody's covering it. And if we can go in there and cover these and be crowdfunded as we cover these that to me is the genuine sweet spot of being able to give the light that these things need in the purest possible way and that's why we try to crowdfund this it's not because we're trying to milk money out of you guys it's because we want to do this the best way possible and we really care a lot about this and so you can help us with that initiative by going to teespring.com linux or patreon.com today no is there anything else you want to add before i wrap up well, it's one of those things where you, <clears throat> I always question the motives of, of anyone that I listen to. I always wonder when, when, I, when I hear people on the radio, when I hear people on TV, why, why did they advocate for that product or why did they like that thing? And, you know, working with you, one thing I've noticed is you are so particular about sponsors that you'll take on because you will only take on a sponsor that, <clears throat> that, uh, that, uh, that aligns very closely with your ideals and values. But the nice thing about crowdsourcing that is you become responsible only to the audience. You're not responsible to, uh, you know, to, to any company or, or any of their interests. And, and I think that it provides, uh, I think it provides for, uh, you know, for, uh, for optimum honesty and, and, mm-hmm. and, and optimum coverage and stuff yeah. like that. So, um, all around, I think that's the way to go. And if you're a person that doesn't like to to hear the ads or if you think those are distracting, that's a great way to step up and say, I'll essentially, put my money where my mouth is and yeah. say, uh, let me help out. And as we do this, you know, we learn, like, uh, it's hard to do this kind of coverage right, like to do it using Linux, mm-hmm. to do it uh, uh, in a way where it doesn't 
bankrupt you, right? Like it's expensive well, to travel around and with... bring equipment and stuff. Right. Well, not only that, anytime you're doing it with Linux, that means oftentimes the way to use Linux with something is to take something that could have been done less expensive in software and do it in hardware. The problem with that is there's a dramatic increase in your costs of the hardware to do that. And so, you know, we can do video switching inside of software, but if you want to take that outside and do it, the, the, the video switcher is what, $15,000 to mm-hmm. get to, you know, to get a box that would do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and so when you start looking at those things, you, you have to start asking, you know, it, you know, what, what is possible and that, and, and Linux becomes more feasible and more possible when people are, are able to contribute. Yeah. And I look back uh, at the last, you know, eight plus years of the show. And I think to myself, when, man, did we miss documenting this stuff because it is so more important than we realized it was um and uh-huh. so now i'm like impatient now i just i want to get out there and i want to serve the community the, the this information the, as fast as possible to really get out there because it's like holy crap there's something magical happening here that we're all losing sight of and it's mm-hmm. not going away we're just not talking about it and if, and uh and you know what we've seen over the years is we attend linux fest uh you know the attendance goes up it gets bigger and better it gets cooler right. every year and it's like there's a story here to tell that it isn't going away it's getting bigger and better and brighter and uh so right. it's not it's not too late to jump in. I just wish we had been covering it all along. And if we had been, it would be obvious why we should be. And once we start sure. covering it more regularly, I think the, it's going to totally click with the audience. So anyways, I could go on for hours about this. We should probably wrap it up right there. So uh, Noah, let's do the news. It's the news, and this episode is brought to you by Ting.com. Ting is mobile that makes sense. Ting is our mobile service provider, and it's no contract. That's what I love about Ting. Well, also, I love paying only for what I use. In fact, if it wasn't for that, my small business wouldn't be able to have the cells that we do. I tell you what, like I, I, I feel like I spoil. I feel like a baller. I got an iPhone 5, an HTC One, and a Nexus 5. What's up? Like back in the day, that I've been like $300 into a cell phone bill for that easily, right? And now I'm like 50 bucks a month, like tops. That's like my high bill, right? And it's sometimes as low as 40 bucks a month or 30 bucks a month. So it's pretty sweet being on Ting when you only pay for what you use. And you get hotspots, you get your tethering, you get all that stuff built in, caller ID. I got my Nexus 5 right uh, here. Now it never leaves my site. I, I switched it over to GSM and I got Lollipop up on this business. You know, like I was running multi-ROM before and I was uh, b- bouncing around. But now I've just sort of c- I've committed to Lollipop for for like a month on the Nexus 5 using Ting. I just like I'm going to go all in once I go GSM. It's it's mind blowing. It is it is mind blowing to have an unlocked device that I truly own that I can just flash operating systems on that sits on a network that I just put a SIM card in and I just I'm on the network now. I, I'm not in a contract. I don't have a termination fee. It's just I feel like it's just open to me. It's like and it's the raw dog Google experience that the, just the lollipop ROM like it is. Honestly, the best Android experience I think you can get. I don't know about the phone itself. I mean, I love the Nexus Five, uh, but. You know, when you have Ting, you have a service that has really no gotchas. You've got uh, a phone that is unlocked, that is truly yours. It, it feels so you feel you feel empowered. You feel like it's yours finally, uh, and you're not getting taken advantage of. And they just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them all up, and whatever bucket you fall into, that's all you pay. And if you go to last.ting.com, las.ting.com, not only do you support the big show, but you'll also get a twenty-five dollar credit on your plan if you're going to bring a Ting device. Like, uh, I brought over the Evo 4G, but they have so many compatible devices now. They have a blog post up, but because now they're accepting GSM devices and uh, Sprint-compatible CDMA devices, 
the range of devices you can bring now is crazy. Like Noah's bringing over like these ancient uh, Nokia devices. He's getting, he's getting them rocking on the Ting service, and he's got like the bat line over there. I love it. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. So so you upgraded your GSM. Uh, experience Nexus 5. with Lollipop. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't upgrade to Lollipop. I was previously using that little guy, <laughs> that Nokia from circa 1998, and it works amazing. I charge it one time, and then I have it all week. But the problem is, when I need to charge a week long battery. A, yeah, it has a stupid little proprietary charger that yeah. doesn't work. I don't. I don't like that. Yeah. So what I did was, I I went to some Chinese manufacturer and I bought this. And this is a, to give you an idea of how phone, small Noah? it is. Is that a calculator is, or a phone? But watch this. No, it's a phone. It's a GSM phone, but watch this. I take my wallet, <gasps> my phone in my wallet. Oh, my because gosh. Because it is a credit card. So there's my wallet, and that's how, that's, that's. You have a cell phone in your wallet right now. I have a cell phone in my wallet. And the, the great thing is, like, it, it has actually decent call quality. Like, the audio quality is actually not 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 that bad, considering it's it's a credit card. It's a credit card that's a phone. It's a GSM phone that's a credit I card. I want a picture of that, too, so for that thing I'm working on. Can you do that and for me? And it's, uh, I can. I wish you would have told me the other day. When I didn't I know you had something cool like that. that. I didn't know you had something cool like that. Yeah. I'm well, I, didn't, like... I actually, I didn't get it until later. I took the picture. I sent it to you. Uh, oh. for, the, for the Nokia, yeah, and then later that day, because it came from Hong Kong, so and it was funny because it like the phone was made in Hong Kong, yeah. but the 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 language is like Italian. So I was in the mumble room last night, and I'm like, who knows what El La Fua La Phone Configio? <laughs> and then they were walking me through how to change the language to English. So yeah. go to last.ting.com to get started, and and uh, if you could just grab that uh, the uh, SIM card, if you got a device, you can drop it in the new Ting GSM SIM. Uh, it's nine dollars, and what I love about it is it fits all different sizes like you just pop out like if you need a micro sim or a regular sim like you just pop out the size you need uh, last.ting.com and uh, you'll get a $25 service credit you could you'll probably be able to use that for quite a while and before we wrap up you know I love me the app picks and uh, this one's one I actually got this week I recommend it too so Kyra's here with our app pick of the week for Android take it Kyra why did the chicken cross the road no I refuse to say that that's ridiculous I'm Kyra, and this is the Ting App of the Week. Go, Kyra! As you may have guessed, Crossy Road is a game where you literally cross the road. It's a super simple concept, but the lure of beating that high score and maybe unlocking a new character from the dozens available is what will keep you going. Tap to jump forward. Tap left or right to, you guessed it, jump left or right. It's fun. Grab coins along the way. Yeah. Timing is key to avoid getting hit by a car, yeah. truck, or train. Or train, yeah. Likewise, timing is what will get you across the water hazard safely. You start out as a chicken. However, for every 100 <laughs> coins you accumulate, you'll get a chance to unlock new characters. This is a freemium game. Dropping a few bucks will net you some hard-to-get characters that might help you out. Crossy Road is undeniably fun. It gets bonus points for not being too heavy-handed in its attempts to part you from your money. In other words, you won't get locked out from playing for half an hour while you wait for more lives to become available. Crossy Road is available in both the Play Store and the App Store. If you're looking for a fun, addictive little time waster, it will certainly meet your criteria. As the name of the show implies, we have new episodes every week. Hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an app. I'm Kyra and thanks for watching. Last.ting.com. Go get started. And I will also recommend that game. It's actually pretty fun. You can check out Ting's YouTube channel for other clips. Also, you can follow them on Twitter. They're at TingFTW. And sometimes they're tweeting really interesting things like deals. I missed they had a mo they were given a, a discount away on a Moto X2, and I totally missed it. Gosh, I wanted that so bad. Uh, Last.ting.com. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. 
Noah, I know you're not a big Steam gamer, but screw you because I love it. And I'm super excited about this next story. So double screw you because Steam just hit over a thousand games uh, on Linux. A thousand games. Ladies and gentlemen, when this show started, there were like four games that were commercially being actively developed for Linux. The Loki games had crashed and burned. Of course, there were open source games, but there were really, except for Unreal Tournament and that extra binary on the Quake 3 CD, pretty much nothing shipping for Linux when this show started commercially at the time. Boom! Over a thousand titles for the Linux operating system on Steam. Absolutely incredible because it's actually 1,005 games for Steam and Steam OS. That's out of 48,000 games total. Oh, But still, 20% of all the titles on Steam are now available for Linux. Uh, this is way, way, way better than the Mac was doing at uh, this point in time. And a great little talking point uh, for uh, SteamOS machines. When somebody says, how many games are available for uh, SteamOS? You can say, over a thousand. Over a thousand. Right, Noah? That's always good as a sales pitch. I love, uh, I love Steam. I'm glad when Steam wins at the games that they play. Yeah, Noah. Uh-huh. Shut up, Noah. It's such a pain in the butt. All right. Uh, how about this one? You know how Google likes to do stuff and then stop doing stuff? Well, Google's doing uh -huh. a little bit of that. Uh, and maybe it's not so bad. Google is shutting down Google of Code, the home for open source projects if you wanted to host them on Google. Uh, Google uh -huh. says to meet developers where they are, we ourselves are migrating nearly a thousand of our own open source projects from Google Code to GitHub. As developers have migrated away from Google Code, a growing share of the remaining projects were spam or just abuse. Beginning today, we have disabled new project creation on Google Code. We will be shutting down the service about 10 months from now on January 25th, 2016. Ah, oh, the day before my birthday. Uh, so on March 12th, that was a couple of days ago, new project creation has been disabled. August 24th of this year, the site goes read-only, so you can still check out stuff. Uh, on January 25th, 2016, project hosting service is closed. You can get a tarball of your project sources, issues, and wikis for the rest of 2016. The simplest way to migrate off Google Code, though, is they have a Google Code to GitHub exporter tool, uh, which provides an automated way to migrate the project source, issues, and wikis, but double-check it because some people have had some problems. Uh, no, my birthday is the 26th, not the 25th. So anyways, yeah. Uh, what do you think, Noah? Is this surprising to you or a good move on Google's part? Yeah, no, it, it's hugely surprising to me, and I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think it's a good move. Um, the, you, know, you know how many projects that I've looked at that, that have been linked to the, the Google code page? Well, though, our, I feel our, like it's our desktop pick this morning, uh, the, uh, the shell. Um, oh, okay. That, that was, was a Google code. From. <laughs> that, was a, that was a Google I, code yeah, project. It was in it was in the repo, but it's it's one of those things where I, I find that all the time. And then there are some obscure things, like for example, um, the there was a script for fixing my Pixel, so that it, it had this weird problem with the TPM chip, where every second time it would go into suspend, the computer would reboot, which, as you can imagine, is a little frustrating. Um, and the people that developed the script uh, collaborated all that on Google Code, and then eventually mm -hmm. released the script, and it, it was amazing. So. I'm well, really disappointed at the same time, though, if they were going to launch, if they were launching Google Code today, I would be like, oh, Google, not invented here syndrome, can't just use GitHub where everybody else is. Yeah. What's their problem? Always have to do their own thing. So isn't right. this just Google kind of playing along and being like, well, look, Microsoft's going to GitHub. They put yeah. .NET on GitHub. If Microsoft's putting .NET on GitHub, maybe Google, because if you think about it from that perspective, Google now kind of looks like, like the weirdo, like the guy that won't play with everybody yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I can see that. I, I guess I can see it both ways. It just GitHub it, just dominates once now. Once you though. have once you have something rolled out, I, I just I, I and I suppose you know the other thing is too is and what we don't know is Google probably has definitive numbers of how many people are actually using 
Um, yeah, and they said it's crap. So they were saying it was becoming crap. Yeah. The, I just I like competition. That's the only thing that, that jumps out at me about it. Uh, and this mm-hmm. definitely makes GitHub a, a power. I mean, unquestionable champion powerhouse. And also, for some reason, like it makes me think mm, maybe we should be promoting GitLab a little more. Like maybe people should be rolling their own GitLabs just to kind of keep you know some some pressure on GitHub to keep things real. I guess. Right. Um, all right. I, w- I want to talk about one more story. Unless there's any other thoughts you had on that. Nope. nope. Okay. Uh, so we covered this on Linux Unplugged this week, and when we covered it, we were just kind of, this happened because this is in the mailing list, and it's not maybe a big deal. Maybe it is. What do you guys think? And it was this code of conflict that was committed to the Linux kernel that sort of says, we're going to handle issues this way. Uh, people are human. There's going to be uh, conflicts in an important project like this, but this is the step to resolution. And the Linux Foundation liked it. It was written by Greg K.H., and it was submitted to the Linux kernel by Linus Torvalds. That was what we knew on Tuesday. Well, today is Sunday, and by Sunday, it has become a complete and total internet drama that is completely fueled by absolutely no basis, in fact, uh, just rampant speculation to get web clicks. And we'll start with the mother of all web clicks, Business Insider, who wrote the mother of all headlines, the Linux Foundation wants to rein in its insult-spewing leader. Now, keep in mind, Linus is the one that committed the code patch to the kernel himself. Right? Okay. So let's bear that in mind. So they write, On Monday, the Linux Foundation kind of sort of slapped him on the wrist when they issued a new code of conflict policy that they declared personal insults or abuse are not welcome. Then... This Business Insider article goes on to state all of the mean things Linus has done in the last six months. Uh, uh, and then they point out that it wasn't Torvalds sort of implying there's conflict within the ranks. It wasn't Torvalds who wrote this policy. It was his right-hand man, Greg Hartman, who wrote it and cutely submitted it as a patch to the Linux system. That meant that the ultimate keeper of Linux, Tor- Linux, or, uh, of Linux Linus Torvalds, has to see the patch and approve it, which he did, adding public comment. Let's see how this works. And then, right after that line, it says, For a flavor of the kind of abusive programmer, an abuse you might expect from Linus Torvalds, take a look at his rant on Friday uh, on Google+. And then, he, and then they, they uh, paste his Google Plus rant about uh, the Android calendar, which was completely legitimate. And then that's how they end the article. That's how they end that particular article, really contributing nothing to the discussion other than painting it as the Linux Foundation is reining Linus in and he's going up against Greg. Uh, so then uh, the Tech Republic covers it, uh, Linux kernel, patch, release, code of conduct, a little bit better there, I would say. Uh, but they say developing within the Linux world isn't always smiles and sharing with Kumbaya. Uh, they talk about this new patch, and they kind of go into, again, more drama, implying drama where there's not necessarily any drama that we know to exist. But the Tech Republic one's not bad. Then we go to Linux Insider, and they call it the Linux kernel's new Play Nice patch. Again, not a bad headline, but sort of putting a spin on it that doesn't really need to be there. Uh, and all of these articles kind of go into uh, previous rants and uh, drag up all things like that. And I don't really think they add much to the conversation. What do you think? So, well, so let me start with this. First of all, <clears throat> I think that I completely understand where people are coming from when they say that they feel offended um, by some of the things that Linus says, right? So, for example, take, for example, when the uh, when he was interviewed about asking how he feels his, his conduct when he says that he wishes they could retroactively abort people or that he is surprised that somebody, uh, somebody is, they're so stupid that he's surprised that they were able to find their mother's nipple when they were little. Things like that, I don't know, provide necessarily any constructive criticism to building code, right? At the same time, I'm not sure I even believe that Linus himself cares uh, 
to, he, he himself is he's very open to the fact that he's going to call it as he sees it, and he doesn't care if it offends people. And, and as he correctly points out, there are hundreds of thousands of people that you can work with and around, and, and in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the kernel, I would imagine, uh, you know, probably a, a couple hundred people that you could contribute, you know, your code to and work with them. You don't have to work directly uh, with Linus, so he, he picks the people that, right. that he works really right. well with. And, and so, and this idea that we all have to get along is, is kind of silly, right? And, and so, you know, if, if you don't get along and, 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 and harsh criticism isn't for you, then work with somebody else. Me personally, I'm the kind of person that wants to hear stuff directly to my face and I want to hear exactly how it is, even if it's harsh. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem when people walk up to me and, and, and tell me a cold, hard truth. And if there's some personal insults uh, thrown in there, I, I, whatever, I don't care. So, um, so, and I don't know that I necessarily believe that 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 uh, that kind of attitude is going to change, even with this Linux right. kernel patch. I, that's I, I, that's a good point. I don't think it, we have necessarily should expect it to. Yeah, I, maybe not. I mean, I guess what I don't like is sort of, <clears throat> uh, you know, I was just talking at the, in the at the at the end of the last segment about how we have this, you know, we need to sh- we I want to shed more light on the positive aspects of the Linux and open source communities, and then we right. have these articles here, like uh, so the the Linux Insider one. And I don't really want to pick on Linux Insider, but this is, you know, they say, uh, this is a quote from the article I pulled and put in the show notes. Whether this tactic pans out to solve the growing friction within the Linux community remains to be seen. Okay, the growing friction within the Linux community? Right. I don't even know right. if I accept that. What I accept yeah, is that we have more coverage of the friction. But I actually, if yes. you look at the Linux kernel mailing list, the amount of flare-ups has gone dramatically down. Right, yeah. the actual conflict rate is down. Right. The the coverage of the conflicts are way up, but the conflicts themselves uh-huh. are way way down. But this article just yes. states that the the friction is going up within the Linux community, just sort of setting that right. now as the new level of discourse uh, in the community. Uh, they say this as kind if that wasn't the way that he always was to begin with. Right, uh, or or uh, you know uh, like I was talking about earlier with the uh, with the uh, Tech Republic article. Tech Republic article says, some would say the center of the problem is Linus Torvalds himself, and that his blunt, cavalier attitude towards dealing with other developers has led to too much tension within the ranks. However, one man holds such a massive responsibility for that much code, uh, it only makes sense that he carry a sharp stick in that tone. The problem comes with the, when the con- uh, contributors begin calling out Torvalds publicly. This happened recently, and then he, he ties it in with uh, the System D debate, when Lern- mm-hmm. Lennart Pottering called Torvalds out for uh, encouraging hate speech and attacks. Partner went so far to say the Linux community is a, a sick place to be in, and then he segues into the entire System D debate and 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 all of that, which is right. totally unrelated to the Linux kernel yes. and the way Linus behaves. But he uses right. that, and and rightfully so, to make a, an interesting, compelling par- point. But it's confusing the reader to think that somehow Linus is responsible now for the System D to back. Right. So and let's talk about this. If you if if your goal if if they believe so strongly. Okay, that the that the that we have a toxic environment and that there are problems. When the Linux Foundation puts their foot forward and says, "Okay, let's try and do something about it. Let's try and do something constructive about it." Why tear that down? Why spin that into a negative I thing? Know. Why to get uh, why clicks? If, if, but, to get but, clicks. But if you're if if the if you're so ups, if you're so concerned about about uh, about um, about you know uh, hosting this toxic environment, then why wouldn't you do everything in your power? to to try to uh, to promote a positive change and so when a, a company come or when a foundation comes forward and when Linus himself comes forward and says we're going to do a better job of trying to be uh, you know nicer to people and 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 stay away from personal insults you would think that that would be a great headline that uh, finally the Linux moves forward and we've had a toxic past but things are going to get better now but instead we 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 you know the, it's almost like they need 
uh, they need yes. that negativity, yes. and if that goes away, yes. then then that takes away from their their headlines. And and I think that that is a it's it's a poor attitude, and I think it's I think it's a I think it's a poor take on Linux. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the advantages why I like uh, LWN.net is because they do slow publication and they do a weekly update mm-hmm. and they don't have to have a couple of articles a day. Uh, I think that's one of the right. reasons podcasts are a little better about this too. Same thing. It's a weekly release. They don't have to have something compelling every single day. Well, Tech Talk right. today does, but thankfully. See, the other problem is, is when, you're, when you're just covering Linux and open source, it's a narrow spectrum. And so right. you really kind of got to work with any source material you're given in some cases. Yeah, but you could work with that stuff without turning it into, without without spinning it in this in this to making it into something that it's not to begin with. Yeah. Um. You know, I I I, I think it's unnecessary. I agree. All right. Well, let's move on. And talk about uh, NTP. Uh, he's the guy that's been dubbed Father of Time. Might be calling it quits. Not all is well within the NTP open source project and uh, <clears throat> the number of volunteer contributors. Uh, examine bug reports and write fixes has shrunk over the lifespan of the project. Uh, even though its importance has increased, its ongoing development and maintenance now rests mostly on the shoulders of Sten, uh, and that's why NTP faces a turning point. Sten, who works uh, sporadically on his own consulting business, has given himself a deadline. Garner more financial support by April or look for regular work. Now, this is the guy that develops NTP. Uh, Sam Raimi, the CEO of Cloud Foundry, uh, stated that Sten's work in uh, at the Open Commute Summit in 2015 on March 11th said that he uh, was scraping by and that uh, as he continued to work on NTP and that uh, we have to do something. Now, this I wanted to stop here before we move on to the pen- to potential solution. And I wanted to kind of reflect on the fact that this is the same state that led us to things like Heartbleed. And there are critical open source components out there that we depend on that almost amazingly so, are like one person. And if that one person stops working or wins the lottery, we don't have a critical piece of infrastructure or something like Heartblade works in there. And to that end, uh, I find that this just seems to be an ongoing problem that we don't have a good way of addressing. What do you think, Noah? Shouldn't, isn't, you know, the thing with Heartblade was, and this came to light, was that of companies that relied on this would, would, would have zero problem uh, contributing some capital towards the yeah. development of, of things yeah. like uh, <laughs> of things like SSL or OpenSSL rather. Um, they were falling short on that. Isn't this kind of the same thing? Shouldn't places that rely on right. NTP, for example, so, Google and Microsoft and Apple and all these companies, shouldn't they all be contributing? This brings us this to that infrastructure initiative that the Linux Foundation is uh, coordinating, and it brings us mm-hmm. to the potential replacement. Uh, it's being uh, uh, led by Paul Hemingkamp, and uh, we've talked about this on TechSnap quite a bit and a little bit on BSD Now. He is being paid by, the, uh, by that foundation uh, money to rewrite NTP. And I, I'm, I'm repeating what Alan has told me, so forgive me if I get the details wrong. I'll get him to try to repeat it soon. Uh, Paul looked at the NTP project and said, all right, I can take this over, and looked at it and said, this is unmaintainable. I, I, there's no way mm-hmm. this project's 20 years old. It's a disaster. It has to be written from scratch, and now he's taking that on. Now, I might have that wrong, but I, I, I believe he's already being paid to do that, and he has a running blog that I have linked in the show notes uh, where he's talking about this, and he's been giving talks. Like, he just gave a talk at Fosdem uh, uh, a few days ago, and uh, I, he might be at the Tokyo uh, BSD can uh, with uh, Alan right now. I'm not sure. But uh, so it's something is happening there, Noah. But uh, you're right. It, the problem is, is sometimes these things go so long without being noticed that it's almost too late. Right. Yeah. Right. Hey, uh, how about uh, we talk about your fedora, your beloved fedora for a second? My beloved fedora. I do love me some fedora. I feel like I've been waiting to say this 
for a really, 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 really long time. Fedora You're switching 22. to Fedora. No. No. no, come on, come on. Okay. Right. That right. I've never been waiting to say. I've never been waiting to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for you to say that. <laughs> no, but I have been waiting to say this. Starting with Fedora 22, the login graphical screen will be starting with Wayland by default. That's a That's big awesome. deal. Wayland it out is. of the box at the login screen by uh -huh. default starting Fedora 22. This is a huge moment for Wayland. This is, and here's why, and it actually it's super genius. Uh, so uh, you got it in 21. You could choose Wayland as a, as a, as a selection from like the GDM uh, login manager or whatever the mm -hmm. hell. Uh, but uh, starting in 22, for most users, uh, you'll see the login screen powered by Wayland. The goal is to progress Fedora to the point where you could replace X altogether with Wayland whenever it appears. The login screen is the first vital step towards this goal. The reasoning behind this is that the login screen is sufficiently isolated and contained, making it ideal for a first place to switch to Wayland. Even though some video device drivers will not work, i.e. the NVIDIA proprietary drivers, uh, so what will happen is when you have the NVIDIA driver loaded, it will just automatically fall back to X11. And it'll just do it seamlessly. And furthermore, if the Wayland version of the login screen encounters like an issue and crashes, even with a compatible driver, it'll also then just start X in the background seamlessly, and just you'll see a GDM using X, and you might see. Oh, a, that's awesome! You might see a flicker or something, but no bigs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, just a small note, Fedora 22, and I think Alpha 1 just hit the web as well. If you want to start uh, submitting some bug. Uh, notes to them and uh, make it even better. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the uh, first distro that shipped with Wayland at boot uh, by default um, had uh, had some really great bug testing, so it really was uh, successful when it launched? Yeah, I can always count on Fedora to be on 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 the edge and, and getting everything right. Yeah, those people from Red Hat—they really do it right <laughs> hey, compared said, to those Arch people. Oh. Oh, like, I was going to let you just have that, and then you had to go there. I could switch yeah. over to Wayland right now if you want, yeah. though, yeah. what you got. And, and, you, and you have been able to do that for how long? <laughs> for right? a very long time, a very long yeah. time. Uh, all right, that, I kid. You know what? It's time we go get in the ham shack, Noah. That's all the news for this week. Something new on the show for me this week. I don't really know much about what we're going to talk about. I'm going to learn, but it's on a subject I've wanted to know a lot more about for a long time. Ham Radio. And Noah says you might consider it the original open source. Well, he'll tell us more about that and about his Ham Radio setup under Linux. But first, let me tell you more about our segment sponsor, and that's System76. Go over to System76 and get a machine built to run Linux. I'm talking no more concerns about if your Bluetooth works or your wireless works or if your display is going to work or your video card. No more of that. It's built to run Linux, and it ships with Ubuntu 14.10 or 14.04 if you want it. they got a bunch of great laptops to pick from, desktops, and brand new servers. Run the most popular cloud OS in the world on System76 servers. It's a great way to go. Go over to System76.com and get yourself something really nice and tell them the Linux Action Show sent you. All right, Noah, is there anything you want to set up or should I uh, just uh, roll the clip? You tell me. Yeah, you, you, can, you can just start it. Okay, so this is, uh, this is Noah's setup here. He recorded this for us, I'm assuming, probably in the middle of the night last night. And, uh, <laughs> and you I look, if, you, if, you, if you're a sharp-eyed viewer, you'll notice it, it, I start these things, I, I, I mean well, right? Like, I start planning on, like, I, I think I started on Wednesday, and so you'll notice, like, the, the first parts of it are filmed with, you know, bright, bright, nice, sunny, lit places, and then they're really well. But if you notice the timestamp on the screen cap, which is towards the end of the segment, you'll notice it's, like, 4 a.m. or something. Oh, my gosh. All right, with that, here we go. <laughs> go 
You might say that ham radio was the original open source. The two communities share a lot of core values in common. It's this idea that we own the technology that we've purchased, that we can open it, open it up, that we can play with it, and when necessary, that we can modify it. Just like you might scoff at an Apple user for wanting their automagical button to make everything happen magically and automatically, Ham radios for a long, long time have scoffed at the idea that you would trust your personal communication to some corporate entity or some business or some governing body. It seems silly to them. Do you remember things like SOPA? Do you remember things like net neutrality? Why didn't we have similar issues in the ham radio community? Well, the answer is simple. There's no one place to go after them. There's no, there's no one central place that you can, you can round all the hams up and tell them this is how you're going to do something or this is how you're not going to do something. You might even say it's the original peer-to-peer -peer network. Now, some people might ask, isn't ham radio old? Isn't it outdated? Isn't it, isn't it useless at this point? Don't we have the internet? Isn't, aren't there better alternatives? I have my cell phone. Why do I need ham radio? And that answer, the answer is very, very simple. And the answer is that, first of all, all you need is the equipment that you own to operate it. I don't need a backbone. I don't need a don't need a, a business to provide me a network. I don't need an ISP to give me a connection. I don't need a cell phone provider, okay? I own that equipment. I can make it operate. As long as I have available power, which I can get from solar or an AC wallet or a battery, uh, I can make my ham radio equipment work. Now, what can we do with ham radio? Well, really, the, the possibilities are endless. We can send video, we can send audio. When we need to, we can send high-quality FM. When we need to maximize and conserve bandwidth, we can take a, a given frequency spectrum and we can split it up and transmit on the upper sideband and the lower sideband, so essentially we're getting twice for our money. It's a very innovative hobby. If you're a ham radio operator, you're gonna love this segment. It's gonna be awesome. I'm gonna go over some gear, I'm gonna go over the software, show you how you can make that work on Linux. If you're not a ham radio operator, don't shut us off quite yet. If you like Linux, if you're into open source, if you like the idea of the Librem laptop and the System76 laptop, then you're gonna like ham radio, okay? It's the same concept, just with a little bit of a spin. Hands down, one of the most interesting things about ham radio is the idea of equipment, right? You can buy the hardware and you can play with it. So, what do you need to get started? Um, this is a basic amateur radio kit. Um, so, what it is, is an FM transceiver, an antenna, a microphone, and a power source. Now. The power source is the one thing that varies drastically. You can do everything from a solar panel to a car battery, extra car battery that you have laying around to a 12 volt uh, DC power supply, which I have here. So go ahead and plug our power supply in and the radio comes on and we take our antenna and throw it somewhere and take our microphone, hang it on the microphone hook and I am ready to go. This is what I need to communicate. I don't need anything else. I can talk to everyone in the talk to everyone in the city uh, with just this setup alone. So this doesn't require uh, any infrastructure. Doesn't require any backbones, and it is relatively cost effective. I think this radio was about one hundred and sixty dollars. I think the antenna was. Uh, you know, I, I made it, so I, I guess it's. Um, I guess parts is probably 10 or 15 bucks. And then, you know, whatever a battery is, or if you want a power supply, they're probably $80, $90. Um, but for just a couple hundred dollars, you can get started and you can have a kit. Now, you can't actually get on the air and operate. You have to get a license from the FCC. But what does getting a license entail? Well, actually, as it turns out, it's not that hard. They have a question pool, a, a group of questions that they give you the correct answer and all of the wrong answers. And then they put all of those questions, possible questions, into a pool and publish them every year. 
and then they'll randomly select 35 questions and test you on it. So you can go to uh, the FCC website, and we'll have a link in the show notes, and you can download the full question pool and read every question they're going to ask you and read every available answer, both correct and wrong, and then go take your test. If you can't pass the 35 question test where they're gonna give you the questions and answers ahead of time, I don't know what to say. Radio waves are a lot like this bouncy ball. If I was to make the ball make smaller hops across the table, I would cover a very short distance, but very densely, as opposed to if I made bigger hops, I would cover a wider distance, but there would be gaps in between. So to communicate long distances, you've probably heard of people that are hams that talk all the way around the world um, and things like that. We can't use a radio like this. This is a, this is a VHF radio. It's meant for in-town local communication. Although there are ways to extend the range, what we really need is a radio that's designed for communicating across the world. Let's take a look what that looks like. If you want to talk across the world, the VHF radio that we showed you earlier isn't going to quite work. What you're going to need is an HF radio. This is an example of an HF radio, and as discussed earlier with the bouncy ball, it makes long hops. The basic principle is the same. We need a microphone, a radio, and a power supply. The difference is the antenna is going to vary a little bit. With the VHF antenna, it took up maybe just a couple feet here on the floor, but an HF antenna might take up 50, 60, maybe even 70 feet, depending on what kind of antenna you buy and who you buy it from. Mine takes up the majority of the face of my house. But with this radio, you'd be able to talk all over the world. Of course, there are other options. You can, of course, mount an antenna to your car and communicate that way. I know a lot of people that do that and it works out really well for them. Personally, I prefer to do it downstairs in the ham shack. Before we can talk about what to look for in software on Linux for ham radio, we need to know what that software needs to do. Here's an example of my first logbook. And essentially, it's a spiral-bound book with columns and rows that allow me to log the information as I make contacts. Things you'd want to know, um, of course, the date, the frequency that you made the contact with, the mode. How are you making that contact? Is it traditional FM? Uh, is it uh, the lower sideband, upper sideband? Are you using Morse code? Are you using PSK? Are you communicating by connecting your computer to the radio and then transmitting uh, you know, an electronic message that way? How much power did you use to make the message? What time did the contact start? Who did you make the contact with? What time did the contact end? And then how were you able to hear that person understand understand them? Did their signal come in strong? Did their signal come in weak? And uh, did you were you able to understand what they were telling you? And additionally, then they have a uh, a column here for comments. Now, one of the old ways that we used to confirm a context with was, was something like this, which is a QSL card. So essentially, it's essentially a ham radio postcard that says, hey, we talked on this specific date, um, you send me your contact info and I'll send you mine, and then of course the the frequency and such is, uh, is, is written on the card. This has largely been, um, if not replaced, at least uh, added to with the advent of online QSL cards, which as we'll see in a moment, you can tie a lot of that those online services into the software that works on Linux. If playing with the ham radios didn't grab your attention before, we're about to get to the Linux. Now I'm going to show you some of the software that I use on Linux to make ham radio possible. It's not exactly the same as it is in Windows or Mac, but that's okay. As long as you're willing to open up your mind and accept a slightly different workflow, you can still accomplish the same things. The first piece of software I want to talk about is K-Log. K-Log is a general purpose logger or a contest logger. What is a ham radio contest, you might ask? It's a time where ham radio operators attempt to contact as many stations as we can in a very short amount of time. 
ordinarily when we're talking, it's more of a conversation style. I'll say hello, you'll say hello. I'll ask how the weather is, you'll tell me how the weather is. You'll ask how my weather is, so on and so forth. In a contest, there's a very specific and deliberate set of exchange. So for example, November sweepstakes, uh, I would give my call sign, um, my signal strength report, and a serial number, and my locator. So, KC0SKE, I have you 5 by 9 you're talking to North Dakota, your serial number is 1724, the serial number being the amount of contacts I've made. Um, and then they would read back a similar, and we would move on. It would be very inconsiderate to, to during a contest, to sit there and try to uh, gabber with somebody. When you're doing that kind of operation, it is absolutely imperative that you have a logger that will allow you to enter in the information that you need to get in quickly and move on. Let's take a look at the screen of K-Log. You'll notice here that I have a field for uh, my contact. So I can put in KC0REL, that's Alex's call sign. I'm gonna go over here and I'm going to select uh, single sideband. Now once I've selected a mode, it's going, to, it's going to keep that there and I'll press Alt-O to log the contact. Now you'll notice it'll keep me on 20 meters and single sideband and I can log an additional contact. So I might do KC0ZLG. Uh, uh, I'm going to press alt Oh, and it's gonna log that contact. And as you can see, I'm down here, I'm getting a serial number, I'm getting the date, the time, um, of course, the uh, the call sign, the RST report. Now, because I've selected single sideband, it ghosts the tone part of the RST. RST being readability, signal strength, and tone. How well can I understand what you're telling me? How strong is your signal coming into my station? And if we were using Morse code, how good is the tone? Or what is the quality of the tone, rather? You'll notice the tone is ghosted, but if I were to select CW or uh, Morse code, it would then open that option up so I could enter it. Of course, it also gives me the option to do uh, separate transmit and receive frequency so I can log duplex, um, duplex contacts. Uh, for things like November Sweepstakes, what requires a locator, uh, or if I wanted to add their name or their, their home location, I can put stuff like that in. Now this does have uh, a tie-in for DX cluster on this particular box, I don't have that set up, but it can go out to the internet and tell you where the hot spots, so to speak, are for making contacts. Now the second piece of software I want to talk about is uh, Qtel, or Echolink. Now, uh, if you're familiar with Echolink, Echolink is essentially taking ham radio and connecting it to the internet so that we can talk even uh, even wider ranges or sometimes smaller ranges, but with the convenience of a computer. With Echolink, I don't actually have to have a radio. I can actually make a contact on the computer. The computer will go from computer to computer and eventually wind up uh, at somebody else's radio. So here you can see the IP address and the call sign um, and the location for all of these Echolink nodes. And I can uh, click on them and I can connect. I actually don't want to connect right now, but I would be able to connect to those and I can actually uh, operate Echolink. Now, Echolink is traditionally a Windows-only software, so I think it's really important that you understand um, there are clients, there is software available for Linux, you just have to know where to look. This is Qtel, and then there is a server component called uh, SVX Link uh, that you have to have, and those, of course, will be in the show notes. The last piece of software I want to talk about is LinPSK. Now, LinPSK is... Um, a PSK software, so essentially it's sending text messages over ham radio. I told you before in the, in, in the introduction that some people think that uh, ham radio is just, um, you know, playing with Morse code, or some people think that it's, it's only voice. You can actually send text messages um, with uh, ham radio, and more importantly, we can do it inside of Linux. So I might put CQ, CQ, CQ. CQ, uh, if you run those two letters quickly together, it says the words seek you. Um, and so effectively, 
that is the that is the uh, that is the traditional protocol for trying to call any station. CQ, CQ, CQ. I'm calling anyone. Can anyone uh, can anyone talk to me? I would simply click activate, and it would start transmitting. Now I have my rig disconnected because I want to show you uh, the piece of hardware that you need to make this work. This is a serial-to-USB interface. It is entirely natively compatible with Linux, and as you know by now, when I say natively compatible with Linux, I don't mean they have some driver, you have to go to some site and compile some program to get it to work. No, no. You take this device, you plug it into your computer, you get a serial port. Um, and most of the rig controls, or at least the uh, my my uh, my Yezus have um, serial connections. So I th I think the newer ones are shipping with USB. But if you have an older one like I do, then you're going to need a serial port. Now this particular adapter is made by Dynex. I use it for a lot of different things, but I have one dedicated to ham radio, and it's what allows me to use uh, the PSK31. When having conversations in the chat room, the mumble room, and of course through email, a lot of you fell into two groups. Those of you who wanted to know more about ham radio and Linux and you already were hams, and those of you that weren't hams but didn't quite know what the hobby was about and what wasn't sure exactly how to get started. For those of you who want to get started, I would point you to the ARRL, the Amateur Radio Relay League. They're the national organization that fight for amateur radio um, rights, so to speak. They're the ones that defend the literally millions of dollars of bandwidth that we're sitting on, making sure that those bands are set aside and free from interference from things like broadband over power line so that we can continue to use them for years to come. The book, Now You're Talking, which is available on Amazon, we'll have a link in the show notes, that's going to let you... Uh, understand the technology and the questions that they're going to ask you on the test. Again, the test is a published question pool. They're going to give you the correct answers and the wrong answers ahead of time. They're going to give those to you in a text document. Again, that will be in the show notes. You can read every question that you would need to take or every question that they could possibly ask you on the test, and then they'll simply pick 35 of those. I don't know what to tell you if you can't pass the test that they're going to give you the questions and answers ahead of time. I mean, it's really not that hard. Um, of course, you can always reach out to me, noahjupiterbroadcasting.com. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions. And, of course, if you already are a ham, then I guess I'll see you on the airwaves. So, 73 to all of my ham radio friends out there. I hope you found this to be uh, an interesting segment of LAS, and we'll hand it back to you, Chris, at the studio. Noah, that's awesome, and the chat room totally is digging on your uh, setup there. If you didn't get a chance to watch the video version of this week's episode of Last, uh, that's that's a pretty cool setup you have there. So your ham shack slash workstation battle station there. Yep. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's where I live. Twelve plus hours of my life. <laughs> wow. Twelve plus hours of my life most days. That's a heck of a setup. <laughs> have you ever been able to? Now you can do like packet data transmission. So you mentioned text messages. Right. Can you also? Right. Could you transmit like a JPEG? Right, so you could, yeah, you sure could. Um, you can do uh, PSK thirty one. You can send essentially. You can send data. Um, so yeah. you, I mean, you know, y y again, the the amount of bandwidth you're looking at, um, the entire my my entire my privileges cover uh, fourteen uh, two two five to fourteen three five zero. So what is that? That's that's a couple megahertz um, that I have to work with, and then of that, it's split in half because we're only transmitting on half the sideband, and um, you have to be considerate. So the more more space I'm taking up by you know by transmitting you know a lot of stuff then then that's less people that can be on that band so I can't believe um, your are... your antenna though takes up the side of your house that 
your wife yeah. is yeah my is wife was really nice. happy about that yeah. when i said uh, when i said here's what we're gonna do we're gonna put this tower up and it's yeah. it uh the, the 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 beam at its longest element is uh 26 feet or whatever and she's oh, like i geez. think our house is 26 feet i'm like well we'll put it in the center then <laughs> we'll go over the neighbor's yard well she was uh, thrilled. uh so uh links in the show notes to uh all of the uh, linux apps that Noah talked about the book of course and the questions all of that is in there. No, is there anything else you want to touch on on this setup? I mean, uh, you talked about open source a little bit, but I think you talked about it more in the pre-show. Did you want to touch on that all, why you kind of consider Ham a little bit of yeah. like original open source? Yeah, so uh, essentially it's this idea that uh, when, when I buy something, when I purchase something, I feel like I own that item, I should be able to do what I want with it. And so the concept to me of owning a phone that I don't have administrative access to is ridiculous. Right. And the idea that I would buy a computer that I can't open it up and put a new video card in or a new wireless card, that everything would be soldered into this unibody-like gold thing is that to me seems ridiculous and by the same token when i you know and, and so and right now those we think about those things and we look at those things we look at uh, you know like that that laptop that was the um the uh the the uh, the laptop that you kind of hacked together with the it had the like the wood frame and stuff like that oh yeah yeah can't yeah. think of the name of the, the open head, source laptop it's the though. same kind of yeah right it's the same kind of idea you could pick the parts out you wanted you could swap those out and you could play with it and that is that's how you that's how you played with technology yeah you know 80 years ago or 90 years ago when there was no computers then you would you would you would essentially build these communication devices but the reality is the nice thing about the hobby is it it has evolved to include uh, current things. So for example, Echolink, you know, I, we can have a community, I mean, right now we're having pathetic luck because I've literally taken a wire and strung it across the studio to try and, uh, to try and, yeah. and receive and it's not so the correct well. way to do no, it. No. But if I wanted to get a reliable communication, I could use something like Echolink and we could connect it and, and send, uh, send information via IP. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I'd be able to do it. So it, 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 it's a hobby that, that stays current, but the core values, the core belief is that you get to do everything yourself. Yeah. You get to play with everything, and nobody, nobody in the community, by simply by the regulations, they 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 force companies to allow you to build devices right. that allow you to hack. Well, them. I've and always I noticed. Like I've always noticed when we've gone to fests and stuff. Uh, it seems to be that uh, ham radio always has a pretty strong presence. There's always a booth talking about right. ham radio, often talking about software-defined radio in conjunction with Linux yes. and ham radio. Right. So there's a big mm -hmm. crossover there. So, right. And that yeah, kind of yeah, that insight kind of makes two, it clear. Yeah, the the two communities they you know it tends to one one community draws the other. Now, yeah. typically, I see a lot more hams coming to Linux than Linux coming to hams for obvious reasons, and that's because you know, somebody like you, I would imagine, looks at this and goes, "Isn't that cute?" That he has his little dials and he turns it on and he he can spin, and sometimes he can talk to somebody and sometimes he can. And the reality is, though, um, you know, if I was if I if I was using a proper setup or in you know what I was actually using was you know a lot of times Sarah and I will use I have a radio and obviously in my car and then there's one the house and we use it to coordinate groceries and shopping and, and stuff like that and uh, to you uh, you would probably say well I just send a text message or I would I would uh, I would just send a, a telegram or something like that and to me that's one less service I have to rely on it just if it's in my car yeah. and I have power yeah. it's gonna work you know it always works yeah yeah right I don't have to rely on anyone else and there there was a, there was a fascinating presentation and I was super disappointed that the guy kind of botched it because I I started to almost fall asleep because of the way that he was presenting it but there is apparently and there is apparently a an organization that is building a ham radio internet so you essentially you take ham radio you tune it to a specific frequency and then that becomes essentially a modem and you there is a network of people that are doing this and so you can send and receive huh. data uh, over over ham radio, and so it's this idea that it's kind of like a, a a backup if 
anything word anything like soap uh, uh, word ever come to reality it, it were ever come to interpretation then we'd have yeah. something to go yeah. back on and it's going to be a little limited we're going to be back to we're, yeah we're going to be back to IRC GPRS you know, style things yeah. Yeah. right right um, but it's there that's pretty cool that's that's mm-hmm. pretty pretty neat well no thanks for the introduction and uh, now i know where to get my toes wet and uh, dabble a little more. Go check out the resources Noah's provided in the show notes. And uh, if you're listening to the audio version of this show, might not be a bad idea to go download the video to see all the cool uh, hardware uh, that uh, Noah showed off uh, in that segment. But Noah, that is our introduction to hams on Linux. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. But, Noah, before we get the heck out of here, we have some emails to cover, to read. And uh, our first one here comes from Glenn. Uh, he says, good day, Noah. And I'm sure he meant Chris. I think I guess people have caught on that you're reading the email now. Uh, he says, I was wondering if you knew of any USB video capture cards that support Linux. But did you not just? Okay. I currently have a laptop, so USB would be preferable, and would like to convert old VHS and Hi8 videotapes into digital media. Also, any software you could suggest would be great, too. Uh, I, I've asked Chris this question some time ago, and he wasn't aware of any. Uh, if in my family were totally Linux for computing, Ubuntu 14.04, I may not have the same knowledge as you guys do, and a passion for Linux, but I uh, would love any suggestions. Thanks in advance. Regards, Glenn. So, Noah, we did cover a device just last week. We did. We talked about the Magwell HDMI capture device, but as I wrote back, um, as I wrote back to Glenn and explained to him, and, and what I wanted to reiterate for everyone else is, if you're moving VHS and, and or uh, Hi8 or anything like that, the Magwell is not going to be what you want to buy because Magwell is going to be HDMI input, HDMI, and yeah. I have yet to see a VHS yeah. to uh, player that has something. HDMI output. Right. right. So what what I would recommend, what I use is a. Um, is a device from, and we'll have it in the show. And we'll have it in the show notes. But it's a device um, from Hoppage. 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 Yeah, right, right. Um, and essentially, it's a $35 device, and it does composite capture. Again, totally natively compatible with Linux. You plug it in, shows up as a VFRL device. Um, but that's what I use if, if and when I have to pull in video from antiquated sources. Is it uh, uh, the Hodgepodge Six Ten? This one. You know? That is it. Yep. Okay. That is the one. There we go. I'll put it. Um, so uh, uh, you know, it's 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 only forty bucks, I think. And again, uh, totally native compatible with Linux. Does everything the 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 uh, the Magwell would do, except it does composite instead of HDMI, and thus it's substantially less expensive. But yeah. And it's going to be what you need in for VSR. Stuff, that's VCR. Right, right, yeah. In fact, you'd have you'd have more problems yeah. trying to use the Magwell with yeah. uh, with older stuff than you would with that. So that would be what I would recommend. All right, I will drop that in the feedback section of the show notes. Uh, so that way, uh, uh, Glenn can uh, grab that. Do you want to grab this next one about transparency and Firefox? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this comes into us from. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Brandemar. Good guess. Noah, in this. Huh, yeah. No, in the Cinnamon desktop environment, you can actually have Firefox or any other window transparent with a simple scroll of a mouse wheel. My screenshot is this, which he sent email to me. My screenshot of the Cinnamon settings is Croatian, but I'm sure you'll find your way. The scrolling adjusts level of transparency, and you can set the minimum level in the settings. And so, uh, essentially, if I was willing to switch to Cinnamon desktop, which I'm not. But if I was willing to switch to Cinnamon Desktop, I could have the ability to have, a, I was saying the other week that I really wish I could have VLC playing a big video and then have Firefox over it so I could do work in yeah. the browser. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and I do that with the terminal all the time, yeah. Yeah. but I have no way of doing that with uh, yeah. a web browser, and yeah. I thought that would be super Cinnamon neat. and Kwin, yeah. I think, can do it too. 
All right. I'm going to yeah. try this next one. Thiru, Thiru writes in, uh, says, you'll probably, you've probably come across this, but I thought I'd pass it along just in case. It's an open source competitor to Siri, Google Now, etc., and it's built on top of Linux. By the way, I'm a big fan of the show and Linux Unplugged. Sometimes I think I keep using Linux because of the excitement and passion you and the listeners have with it. Keep up the good work. So it's an open source digital assistant, and he links us to uh, the, uh, the page here. I'm going to pull it up, Noah. Have you looked at this at all? I have, yeah. I took a look at it. It's one of those things where I think it's nice that Google now uh, is is doing some of these things, and certainly I have had this option, you know, for a couple of years now with Google Glass because it was kind of doing the same thing. But this is an this is an open source project, so naturally it blows everything else out I'm of gonna, the water. I'm gonna, uh, I guess I'll play a little bit of their video, see what they have here. Here at the University, see what they tell us. It's something we call Sirius. Essentially, what is a replica of Siri, as well as uh, Microsoft Cortana and Google's Google Now, what we call intelligent personal assistance. In a lot of ways, what we've created here with Sirius is like what Linux is to Windows, right? So with Windows, uh, when you have a computer and you have Windows on it, we traditionally don't have access and we currently don't have access to change Windows into being whatever we want it to be. With Linux, you have your own open source operating system that you can customize to be whatever you want. And so what we try to do with Sirius is to provide an open source uh, common infrastructure that anyone can customize wow. and deploy and, and have freedom to do wow. whatever they'd like, but have a starting point that is uh, as intelligent as uh, what you would find in these proprietary environments. Could you imagine like a JB1 digital assistant? That would be really cool. Right. Uh, right. uh, they have yeah. a little demo. All right, I'll play a couple more seconds. They have a little demo of it here. One thing that we've done with this is uh, we've created an intelligent personal assistant that you can ask questions to, uh, you know, things that you would expect Wikipedia to know. When was this built? Another use case could potentially be a startup who would like to provide new types of services that look like an intelligent personal assistant. There are seven this is uh, interesting, Noah. I'm going to look more into this. This is... Uh um, components for the system. Speech recognition, image recognition, and text recognition. This is really neat. And you can see if yeah. it's really truly open source, maybe integrated into the Linux desktop sometime. As long as it's not gimmicky, mm -hmm. it'd be really cool. And I don't think, right. you know, it's right. not, they're not developing it to be gimmicky. It's not a marketing thing. It's to be yes. actually functional. Uh, right. hey, you know, it just struck me, Noah. It just struck me like out of nowhere. I was like, God, I just, I What's feel like you? I don't have enough Noah. I need more Noah. So you know where I went? I went to altaspeed.com oh. and I was just checking out Noah's day job and see what kind of stuff they do in the Grand Forks area. Yeah, we we, uh, we provide commercial I IT services, and uh, we are uh, we're rapidly expanding and, and trying to look at uh, getting into some other ventures like remote support. So, if that's something that interests you, head over to altaspeed.com. Also, while uh, during the week, uh, another thing that that uh, another f another service that Jupiter Broadcasting provides that uh, may not be well known is in the mumble room. Uh, turns out that's a pretty good place if you need some help getting Linux installed. Um, this last week, we had Leo from the mumble room that wanted to get rid of rid his system of Windows, and so there was like four or five of us that we created this separate room, and we all got into the room, and then uh, we were taking turns team viewering into to his computer to try and uh, get his uh, his NVIDIA card installed and get the video to go out to his TV, because that's what he was using for his monitor, but it had to do sound as well, <laughs> and then we had to, we and it was great, because he like, he like dove in feet first, like he's like, alright, well, now that Linux is running, I need to get all my stuff off of Windows, and so I thought we were just gonna, you know, get the his NTFS drive to work on Linux, no, we like formatted uh, redid with ext4 and moved all of his data like he's like whole hog Linux now so and that all happened in the mumble room at yeah. like 
nine at night than yeah. on Wednesday or Thursday. Now, or that mumble room is awesome. Not only is it good for that kind of stuff, but of course, we have an open mumble room for Linux Unplugged. And the Tech Talk Today show, Tuesday through Fridays, has the open mumble room uh, so people can comment on the stories. We just check your mic, make sure you have decent audio, and then uh, it's an open room. And it's full of open source and Linux enthusiasts and BSD guys and all kinds of stuff. Uh, also, join us live, jblive.tv, Sundays, 10 a.m. Pacific. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time. We start at 10. Well, actually, we usually start earlier than that, and we just go for hours and hours. We have in-between stuff we do, and then the folk show follows us up, too. So it's a great Sunday to just sit down and turn the stream on and enjoy. And it makes the show even better because you help us title it, give us suggestions as we go live, all that kind of stuff. And last but not least, i got to plug the subreddit. I really would love you to go over there and get involved. If you've backed off a little bit recently, please get back over there, submit stories, make sure we have the best news in the show possible, the best app picks, the best community stuff, the best discussion. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. There's seven. There's over seven thousand of you subscribed there, uh, but uh, I'm noticing a decline in votes and uh, content submissions. So I'd really love it if uh, those of you who have been a key part of that uh, can double down on that and make the show even better. It's a huge part of what we do, and it feeds not just the show, but uh, uh, Linux Unplugged and sometimes Tech Talk Today as well. Okay, Noah. Anything else we need to cover before we get the heck out of here? No, no, unless uh, unless the Reddit isn't doing it for you, you didn't have access to it for some reason. You could always head over to JupiterBroadcasting.com, click on the contact link, boom, and send us uh, send us submissions or send us your feedback. We'd yep. love to hear it. Yep. I'd love or, to read it. Or email us directly, LinuxActionShow at JupiterBroadcasting.com. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. We'll see you right back here next week. So at Stefan Scoot emailed me or something that's how he says, uh, hey, Chris, uh, on uh, high DPI for your XPS 13, you should try out the latest Opera. It works with most Chrome plugins and supports high DPI. And he included a screenshot of his uh, setup here. And this is his high DPI desktop. It's funny because he's using Unity. Uh, and, uh, and that's his Opera browser. So I have the XPS 13, as some of you know, at home. And it is a high DPI, super nice display. And one of the problems is, is neither Firefox or Chrome support high DPI, really. You can do tricks like there's extensions in Firefox to get it to double the UI size, but text doesn't quite fit right. It doesn't look good. Uh, and Chrome, you can 200% the UI uh, of the web page itself, but the actual Chrome bar, like the URL bar and stuff, is super small and tiny. And there are you, there are uh, double pixel modes for that as well. Again, it looks really crappy. And the irony is, of course, you get a high DPI display because you want your desktop to look as gorgeous as possible. That's why you have a high. So why then you end up with all these hacks that make it just look awful. In fact, it looks so bad sometimes I've thought about just trying to run my display at a lower resolution and just say, forget it. Because I use the web browser so much that it just it felt like what am I doing? Why am I? and then plus the machines working hard to to zoom everything all the time. So when Stefan here mentioned that Opera is using high DPI out of the box on Linux, well, I, I sat there and said, well, well, didn't I remember that Opera switched over to essentially a Chromium base and it's essentially Chromium with Opera's goodies? That might be worth taking a look at it. So I went over to the uh, Arch user repository and uh, I installed Opera-Dev, which is a little bit more of a rolling edge, rolling version, a cutting edge version of the Opera browser, but it had the most votes in the Arch user repository. And uh, I figured I wanted the latest stuff, so might as well give it a go. So I installed uh, Opera-Dev from the Arch user repository, launched it, <clears throat> immediately, immediately noticed that it looked perfect on my high DPI display. 
Uh, I was really pleased with that. It just it looks gorgeous, and I don't know what I don't know if because it's high DPI aware or what, but it feels it feels half as as heavy as as Chrome does. Uh, it, I mean, it's just so f like I, I I often will show people like. You want to see what's horrible about high DPI on Chrome? Go load Google Plus, and you just when Google Plus loads, the fans in my laptop turn on. Like that's it's, it's pathetic, right? And I can see up in my menu bar, I can see the CPU kicking up. I'm just like, man, this is just a web page. I load that same thing up in Opera, it loads instantly, effortlessly, um, and it's just the same core back end. But I think it's something about the way they're doing it, or maybe it's because it's more high DPI aware instead of having to zoom up the web page and zoom up all the flash elements and zoom up everybody's stupid cat gifs on Google+. Because because it's not doing that level of zooming, instead it's just rendering them maybe at that, I don't know. I don't know what technically why. All I know is Opera performs incredible and looks good doing it. But here's the best part. Because the thing that keeps me on Chrome are uh, things like uh, my extensions. Um, like for example, I can go here to a page, and I could I can take some text from a page, and I can highlight it, and I can right click, and I can get a quote and a link formatted in Markdown for me that I can just drop right into the show notes. Now you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of handy. Yeah, I do that like 200 times a day. Seriously, that's like one of the number one things I do because I'm constantly noting. I was doing this at 6 a.m. this morning for Unfiltered. Like it's the it's the morning before Linux Action Show, and I'm reading a story. I'm like, oh, I gotta document this, and so I'm grabbing this information all the time at all crazy ass hours. And so this is a super time saver. Well, that is not available for Firefox, and it's called the Template Extension. And uh, then I've, you can just modify what you want it to do based on their template system. Well, guess what? All my favorite plugins for Chrome, all my favorite extensions. They install an Opera. I got one extension for Opera that allows me to download plugins from the Chromium or from the Chrome Web Store. Now I install that, and I got my favorite extension. So I got Template, I got Diago Bookmarker, whatever it is, Diago, whatever it is. I, I got LastPass, which was I didn't really need, but I got my Markdown stuff. LastPass has a native plugin, um, and and now so I've got high DPI. I'm using essentially Chrome. Um, I, I've got uh, better performance, and I've got my favorite Chrome plugins in Opera. And I also have the benefit of being a little bit removed from the Googs. Like, the Googs is definitely a huge part of Opera, but I know that, like, my bros and sisters over at Opera are, like, sifting through that S and being like, well, we don't want that in our product, because we're proud. Because they're proud of their web browsers. They don't want Google, like, uh, sticking something in there that's nefarious. So, uh, you know, the, the folks over at Opera are going to pull that stuff out. So, I, I mean, I assume, right? Because... It's Google's business to track me, and it's Opera's business to make a kick-ass browser and get me to use their browser, and it's always in their best interest to make that the most appealing to me as possible. Whereas, always oh, it's kind of be in the Google's best interest to kind of know what I'm up to. And so I like that maybe, potentially, Opera kind of puts a buffer between me and that Google's instinct. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. You should go check it out if you haven't. Opera on Linux is actually pretty nice. I don't know who you can trust more. I don't know if that's even relevant, really. Uh, because <laughs> if you really care about that, you, you should probably just be using Epiphany or Web, you know, <laughs> which is also, by the way, high DPI. So.